Thank you for choosing to listen to the Emmaus Radio Ministry Podcast. Each of these messages were given by various faculty, staff, and friends of Emmaus Bible College. To view each series as a whole, or for more information about similar Emmaus ministries, please visit concerninghim.com. That's C-O-N-C-E-R-N-I-N-G-H-I-M.com. You can talk the talk, but can you walk the walk? One of the commonly cited problems people have with the church today, well, is hypocrisy. To be sure, sometimes this accusation is unfounded, and it seems like people are using it just as a smokescreen. Sometimes the accusation against Christian leaders who are accused of hypocrisy turns out to really be baseless. The person, of course, still has his or her faults, but nothing that would disqualify the individual from leadership. However, the accusation of hypocrisy remains a fair charge for many within uh, church leadership, and this is the way that it's been for a while. In fact, it's around now, and it's been around for a long time. We've seen Jesus speak against the religious leaders before in Matthew, but in our text for today, he comes head-to-head with them, and this particular issue of hypocrisy rises to the surface. We will be looking at Matthew 21, verses 23, through chapter 24, verse 14. In the aftermath of Jesus' prediction of the destruction of the temple earlier in chapter 21, the leaders are, understandably, concerned. Predictably, they want to talk to Jesus. In their thinking, Jesus needs to be shut down. They think they can check him into his right place with a well-placed question. Who gave you the authority to do these things? After all, he didn't come up through their system. And they're thinking, Jesus is a nobody from the backwoods of Nazareth. He has no jurisdiction here. They are the ones who are in charge. The simple question, they think, uh, will put Jesus in his rightful place and settle any question in the people's minds about uh, their own place. But as we'll see, all of this backfires on them. Jesus responds by talking about John the Baptist, and actually in all the synoptics, he gives the parable of the wicked tenants. But Matthew includes two extra parables which surround the wicked tenant parable. Uh, Preceding the wicked tenant parable, Matthew records the parable of the two sons. And afterwards, he includes the parable about the wedding feast. The middle one, the wicked tenant parable, is a bit more complicated, and we'll take a look at that in our next episode. But here we are concerned with how Jesus responds to the question about his authority by bringing up John and then the uniquely Matthean parables of the two sons and the wedding feast. So we'll start by reading Matthew 21, verse 23. And when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I also will ask you one question, and if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, where did it come from? From heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves, saying, If we say, From heaven, he will say to us, Why then did you not believe in him? But if we say, From man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We don't know. And he said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. What do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, 
I will not. But afterward he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, the first. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. Now, verse 33 then begins the wicked tenant parable, which we'll tackle in our next episode. Let me just point out that it also has the idea of replacing those who work in the vineyard and condemns the religious establishment because they don't bear fruit. The inadequacy of the religious leaders continues in the next parable, uh, but with an important twist. So we'll pick up there in 22.1. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king, who gave a wedding feast for his son, and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who were invited, See, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready, come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in and looked at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to his attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. Hopefully you were able to catch the thrust of Jesus' response to the religious leaders. They want to know what right he has to operate in the temple like this. Notice that in response, Jesus does not really answer that particular question. The person of Jesus doesn't come up in the bit about John. Jesus uh, is completely absent in the first parable. Nobody corresponds to him. And though he shows up in the wicked tenant parable and the wedding feast parable, both there as the son, these really are minor roles. Um, The son in both of those doesn't play a big role. Instead, he shines the spotlight, uh, that, that is the Lord Jesus shines the spotlight on the corrupt religious leaders and those who will replace them. They want to know about Jesus's authority, but his response is to talk about their lack of authority. Jesus first demonstrates their lack of credibility by bringing up John. This challenges their basic underlying premise which seems to be that only those who come up from their ranks are legitimate leaders in Israel. Jesus points to someone whom they should have recognized, someone who was widely popular at that time, a John the Baptizer. Their inability to answer the question about if he was from God or not shows that their spiritual receptors are dull. If they can't even see that John was from God, they are clearly a hopeless case. 
Their inability to answer shows that they are overly concerned with appearances and not genuinely concerned about the truth. The parable about the two sons uh, or, or two children further blasts Jesus' opponents for their spiritual bankruptcy. The first son, who initially is rebellious, but in the end does what the father wants, represents the tax collectors and the prostitutes, who have responded to the kingdom summons, given both by John the baptizer and Jesus, and as a result, these people have repented. But the first character also demonstrates the superiority of actions over words. What matters is that, in the end, they obey. But the second son is just the reverse. Uh, he has the words, but no actions. He talks the talk, but he doesn't walk the walk. And Jesus here directly connects this hypocrite to the religious leaders. Yes, they've been summoned by God to care for the people of Israel, to work in God's vineyard, a common metaphor, as we will see in our next episode, for Israel. But they are therefore all the more culpable for their inaction. Their hypocrisy and refusal to respond to God's invitation to actually work in the vineyard means they will be surpassed, or we could even say superseded. Now, I choose that word uh, on purpose. When commentators talk about supersessionism or being superseded, they are referring to the belief that the Jews have been replaced by Gentiles. That's the way it's often used. But notice that this is not what we have going on here. Let me explain. Uh, the second son is excluded. And the logic of the parable is that this is self-exclusion. The leaders uh, just weren't leading. So in no sense of the term could they really be called leaders. But those who replace them are not Gentiles. Uh, the first son represents Jewish characters. Now, sinful, uh, despised Jewish characters, but Jewish nonetheless. If we just step back and think about it, this is a harsh slap in the face. Tax collectors, of course, were seen as traitors, and it's difficult to think of an adequate parallel today. But just how lowly they were viewed uh, can be seen by their company. Tax collectors and prostitutes. We don't need a whole lot of explanation here, as that age-old business continues today. Jesus is not concerned with looks or prestige. The elite the religious professionals, will be replaced with people like prostitutes. But though Jesus isn't concerned with looks or reputation, he is concerned with action. The prostitutes are prostitutes no longer. They have repented because they have believed the message of John, believed the message of Jesus, and so they are the ones that God has chosen to go and work in the vineyard. The last parable, at first, seems to only reinforce this basic idea of replacement. Some people are invited to the wedding feast. Uh, first, that is the expected guests, the ones Israel would naturally assume would be in the kingdom, like the religious leaders of Israel. But these don't respond to the invitation, so they are replaced with people further down the social ladder because these ones do respond to the kingdom summons. Now, if the story simply ended there, like uh, the similar one does in Luke 14, then this would simply reinforce Jesus' earlier point. But it doesn't stop there. The story takes a surprising twist. The scene changes 
And now we, we, we see someone within the feast. And Matthew describes them as both good and bad. So these, these are people who are in a different situation than the religious leaders. This person, in a sense, has not just completely rejected the kingdom proclamation. But uh, this figure has not suitably prepared himself, uh, given the significance of these summons. Some have proposed that the reason for this is somehow connected to an ancient practice of providing wedding garments for people. Uh, in other words, uh, the king would have, or the person putting on the, the wedding feast, would have uh, typically provided all the garments that you needed. And this preaches well to show how all of our righteousness has been provided. However, we have to admit that, that, that Matthew doesn't make any significance of that cultural practice, even if it did exist way back in the first century. All that matters for the telling of the story is that the person was not sufficiently prepared. This is a serious warning, then, for those who think that they have responded. A serious warning for the disciples, for those in Matthew's community, and still for the church today. Again, what matters is not only talking the talk, but walking the walk. A person may not be an outright rejecter of Christianity, say, like that of the scribes of Jesus' day. The person may be like a Judas, who, to everyone's perspective, is an insider. Judas had left whatever situation he was in, gave it up, and followed Jesus. He really looked like someone who was in. So he is in a class apart from the Pharisees and the scribes. And yet his response was not followed with suitable action. He talked the talk, but when it came down to it, he didn't walk the walk. This passage, of course, can be troubling for those concerned with the um, topic of eternal security. I have to admit that at one point, I was so concerned with this doctrine that I was keen on the idea that his being cast out referred to something besides um, going to hell. Because, after all, uh, he did accept the kingdom summons and once in, always in. However, this explanation is strained uh, when one considers how frequently the kingdom of God is compared to a feast. To be in the feast is to be in the kingdom. To be outside of the feast is to be outside of the kingdom. And neither Matthew nor any other New Testament author knows of any salvation outside the kingdom. Uh, to build upon this parable, a system of soteriology, is to push the limits too far. We're not supposed to stop and really question the doctrine of eternal security here. The whole point, instead, is to urge those, uh, like the disciples, like Matthew's community, who are not like the rulers of uh, Jesus' day, uh, to challenge those who have initially responded that these people need to bear fruit worthy of repentance and to warn those who belittle the kingdom summons that they eventually will be cast out. Thank you for listening to the Emmaus Radio Ministry Podcast. This ministry is possible because of the generous contributions from our partners around the world. For more information about partnering with us, please visit emmaus.edu partner.